Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 31 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Matcha. Joining me today, a list of usual suspects and a special guest. So with brief introductions going down my list, I have System Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, EMS Division Director, Dan Podra. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Jeff. Our EMS Fellows, Dr. Nick Wiklinski. Dr. Wiklinski, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Good morning. And Dr. Aaron McGlynn, welcome. Dr. McGlynn. Hello. And our special guest for this month uh, and our specialist to give us a deep dive into our topic, uh, Dr. Julie Owen, the psychiatrist from MCW. Dr. Owen, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. And welcome to all of you taking the chance to listen out there in podcast land. As per usual, before we get going into our topic of the month, uh, we'll go through a couple of updates. So anything from the system, Dan? Yeah, Jeff, I got one common theme for uh, an update for the system here, and that is recertification. So at the end of March, the National Registry uh, is the recertification time for all of our system paramedics and EMTs if they choose to do so. And then coming up in June is the state licensure renewal. Us at OEM hold ourselves to a higher standard by creating course content through CAPSI, which is the uh, accrediting body for our continuing education. And a benefit of that is uh, we can upload those training records directly to the National Registry on your behalf and also the state. But we need everyone to ensure that they have their information complete in target solutions to do so. So if you do not have your registry number or your state license number and a couple other details needed in your target solutions profile, please log in there and do that. It makes the process much easier. Thanks. Thanks, Dan, for those updates. And aside on those areas to make your state license renewal that much easier uh, this upcoming June, uh, please, once you're into your national registry accounts and your e-licensing accounts, please make sure that you all your information matches. So names, date of births, all that good information uh, that will make the link up process for state renewal uh, that much easier and more info to come on that uh, coming up in the future. And then we'll hand it over to medical direction for a message from Dr. Weston. All right. Thanks, Jeff. And hello again to all of our listeners. So today's discussion on opioid use disorder takes a step further from last month uh, in not only discussing overdose issues and treatment, but the disorder itself and why this is such a complex and complicated topic. And it's particularly relevant in Milwaukee County. In 2021, 644 individuals in Milwaukee County died from drug overdoses. And that's the highest number we've seen in over two decades of data. Now, 2022 data continues to be processed, but may very well set a new depressing record. Now, that said, please stay tuned for a robust discussion on opioid use disorder. And I'm particularly excited to have our guest, who you'll be introduced to shortly, Dr. Julie Owen. So thank you very much. I'm looking forward to the podcast. And back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Dr. Weston. Uh, and without further ado, we can deep dive into our topic of the month. So I will hand it off to Drs. McClinsky, McGlynn, and Owen. Take it away. Thank you, Jeff. So this month, we're going to continue with our opioid theme. Last month, as you'll remember, we discussed acute opioid toxicity and management. This month, we want to talk more about the opioid addiction side and try to provide a better understanding of opioid use disorder. As we mentioned last month, opioid addiction, which is really better termed opioid use disorder or OUD, like any other addiction, is a disease process like diabetes and high blood pressure. 
However, unlike diabetes and hypertension, addiction is something felt by the patient every single day. It is not a subtle process. And now while it can be easy to become numb to these patient presentations as these calls increase in frequency, it is important to keep this concept in mind. Any sort of addiction carries a higher mortality, but opioid use disorder is particularly dangerous. Hence why we are taking the time this podcast to discuss this important topic. Thankfully, we have an expert with us here today, Dr. Julie Owen, who will help us gain a better understanding of opiate use disorder. Before we chat with her, let's briefly overview what opiate addiction truly is and how it develops. While many people who are suffering from opioid use disorder use drugs obtained on the street, most did not start off that way. As we discussed last month, the opioid epidemic started to boom in the 90s when rates of prescription opioids skyrocketed. Many of those who use opioids today started off using pills, either as personal prescription or via using some from friends or family, but turned to other opioids and other means of obtaining them, given at times cheaper street prices and ease of obtaining. Now, opioids can be effective in controlling pain and do have roles in acute severe pain. However, it is their chronic long-term use for mild to moderate pain that got us into the challenge situation that we are in today. In addition to blocking pain receptors, opioids also interact with other receptors in the body, which result in a state of euphoria, causing that high. This high is what keeps patients coming back for more, which is why these medications are so addictive. So let's briefly discuss addiction. The two key aspects of addiction, whether it's to opioids, alcohol, gambling, etc., are the increased physiologic dependence on said substance, as well as the pathological drive to obtain that pleasurable effect from the substance or the action. So a little on that physical dependence that develops as a result of opiate use. This dependence is a result of the body becoming used to the relative continuous presence of said substance, causing it to modulate the receptors in which the drug acts. As a result, more of the drug is needed to obtain the desired effect, causing the person to either use higher doses or use more frequently. When you remove said substance, those modulated receptors are left starving, resulting in the withdrawal symptoms. In addition to this physiological dependence, there is also the internal drive to seek out that experience or substance to obtain the euphoria and pleasurable effects. Some people are more predisposed to this internal drive, such as young people whose brains are not fully developed yet, or those with a family history or other underlying mental health conditions such as substance use, depression, bipolar disorder, or schizophrenia. Individuals who experience excessive stress due to environmental factors such as low socioeconomic class, poor family support, and drug availability are also at risk for addiction. Now, this is a very simplified overview of the pathophysiology of addiction but at least hits on some of the main points to help show that this is simply not a choice that people make. People are not choosing to use opiates every day. Individuals who begin using substances, often due to a variety of genetic, environmental, and psychological factors, experience progressive and long-lasting disruption in the brain regions and circuits responsible for normal processes of reward and motivation, emotional regulation, inhibitory control, and self-awareness. To try and better understand why those with opioid use disorder need regular opioids, take a look at the COWS score. The COWS score stands for Clinical Opiate Withdrawal Scale, which is similar to the CWA tool for alcohol withdrawal. It's a way for us to try and quantify the severity of the withdrawal that the patient is experiencing and helps us tailor the treatment for that withdrawal. 
We don't have all the time today to cover cows in full detail, so take a look at it when you get a chance or pull it up on Google while you're listening here. You'll see there are some key aspects of opioid withdrawal, such as anxiety or restlessness, sweating, body aches or joint aches, and GI upset like nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. And while these symptoms are rarely life-threatening, they are extremely uncomfortable and are what help drive that strong need to find subsequent opioids. As we stated before, continued use of opioids results in a tolerance, meaning people need increasing opioid doses to simply prevent withdrawal, let alone achieve a high they are looking for. Finding that next fix is almost equivalent to a full-time job for some, as they spend their days finding the means to obtain the opioids needed to satisfy their addiction. Thankfully, there are means to treat these cravings and prevent severe withdrawal through medications such as buprenorphine and methadone. These are medications which help satisfy the body's opioid needs while having a lower risk for serious side effects. We'll cover these drugs in more depth next month. Now again, addiction independence is a more complex process than we are describing here, but we hope this is at least provides some context as to what patients experiencing addiction are dealing with. Thankfully, we have an expert here to help further shed light on this very important and prominent topic. We'd like to welcome Dr. Julie Owen to the podcast this month. Dr. Owen is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine, as well as emergency medicine at MCW, and works in the ED at Freighter Hospital. She is also the chief medical officer at Milwaukee's new mental health emergency center. She's particularly interested in emergency psychiatry, which includes treating psychiatric and substance use disorders in emergency and acute settings. We are very lucky and fortunate to have her here today and to provide her expertise. Dr. Owen, welcome to Push Dose EMS, and thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for the invitation. All right. So we just have a few questions we're hoping you can address, Dr. Owen. The first one on our list here is what are some important aspects of opioid use disorder that are important for pre-hospital providers to know about or understand? So our understanding of the neurobiology of addiction or substance use disorders has advanced significantly over the past decades. Now being able to visualize long-term structural and functional brain changes using functional MRI has shifted our previously limited conceptualization of addiction as a pattern of poor choices or an absence of willpower to the more complex entity that it is. And as with any psychiatric disorder, there can be a misunderstanding that individuals should just be able to focus on feeling or behaving differently. We hear people saying, just exercise more or just eat right, just meditate, all of which are very good and important things to promote wellness and things that we should all be engaging in. But many times for the patients that we see, it's not that easy. Individuals suffering with substance use disorders are often isolated from family members and larger communities. They often have histories of trauma and or psychiatric concerns that may be untreated or undertreated. They may struggle to hold steady employment and thus lose basic necessities such as income, housing, insurance, which only compounds the existing difficulties of accessing and engaging in treatment. And at a societal level, there remains a stigma and lack of understanding around substance use disorders and their treatment that perpetuate a sense of shame and guilt for the individuals who suffer. Often the individuals that we see, they recognize, they know and believe that their use of substances is unhealthy, but their brains are just not functioning well enough to help them do anything differently. There are also likely a lot of psychosocial barriers at play that must be addressed for the patient to have the logistical ability to meaningfully engage in treatment. These are not simple problems to solve for any number of reasons. Yeah, thanks. And that's definitely some 
some things to keep in mind when approaching these types of patients. But given how pervasive opiate use disorder is, it is understandable that providers can become easily burnt out or numb when caring for these patients. What are some ways to combat this? So this is a really important and valid point and probably something that um, while burnout, compassion fatigue, these sort of concepts have existed for quite a while. I think it's something that COVID probably brought to light and um, gave us a, a bigger, better awareness of. So it is definitely crucial to acknowledge that in these acute or emergent practice settings, we see people on the worst days of their lives. And very often we become familiar with some patients who struggle for very long periods of times. We often don't see folks when they are doing and feeling better, when they're stable, when they're well into their recovery journey. So knowing and hearing that people do recover is a good way to combat those feelings of compassion fatigue. One thing that um, I can highlight, we're starting a program in the emergency department at Freighter in collaboration with Wisconsin Community Services or WCS, in which we can access certified peer specialists for patients with substance use disorders and other psychiatric concerns. So peer specialists are individuals who have struggled with substance use and mental health disorders, and they themselves have found a path to recovery. And then they go through a um, sort of certification process with the state so that they can then offer their lived experience in service to those who may be in a similar place in their lives. So that personal interaction with peers can be as impactful on clinicians as on patients, I think. Um, seeing that folks can and do make meaningful recoveries and go on to engage in productive and fulfilling activities, sometimes even helping others going through similar struggles, that knowledge can give purpose to our ongoing daily efforts to help those who continue to struggle with addiction and other substance use disorders. So trying to find more opportunities like that, whether that's through long-term follow-up contact with patients seen in the field who are now engaged in treatment and doing well, so we don't see them anymore in the emergency departments or pre-hospital settings, I think that that would go a really long way toward reminding us daily of our purpose and why we engage in this work. Every time we touch a patient struggling with a substance use disorder, including opioids, we have the opportunity to encourage their recovery. And it may take a number of times, even a number of years for some patients, but long-term recovery is always possible. Thank you for that. That's really helpful to hear. I do think, you know, we have a hard time thinking about patients recovering when we don't end up seeing them after our initial interactions with them in the ER. So I think that's a great way to kind of reframe this. Is there a way that you can think of to kind of reframe the mindset of people who are thinking of opioid use disorder as a choice? Yeah, I think there are two components to this. Um, one, as you guys already touched on and I mentioned earlier, just having the working knowledge and awareness of the even the basic science now that we understand behind substance use disorders you know, we've come to accept many chronic disease states and the need for lifelong treatment and support in a very matter-of-fact way. You both mentioned hypertension, diabetes earlier, but we st still might be thinking of substance use disorders as separate or belonging in their own categories. To reiterate, we know that structures and circuitry in the brain change in ways that promote ongoing substance use, fear states revolving craving and physiological withdrawal, and also impeding the ability to further regulate emotions and behaviors associated with addiction and its consequences. These structures can heal or at least improve and get back to sort of pre-substance use baseline, but that takes a lot of time. 
The other thing to think about, I think involves taking the time, which we often feel and probably objectively don't have as best we can to listen to patients' stories without our own assumptions and without judgment. You know, I've, I've often told my, my trainees, my medical students that as a psychiatrist, I consider it one of the highest privileges and also burdens of my work to be invited by strangers to listen to the most personal and painful of stories, especially in that emergency or acute setting. And we, we talk a lot about empathy and I like to highlight, you know, I can never fully understand what someone else's life experience has been. It's different than my own, but I can do my best to acknowledge and appreciate the suffering that has occurred. And so if you just take a pause, listen to invite those experiences that these individuals have had and truly reframing that personally, they've survived um, a lot of, of suffering and a lot of trauma. It becomes much easier to do away with the notion that substance use is a simple choice that people make. And that's so important, I think, too, to try and, you know, fully listen to patients trying to get their stories a little bit more and that can help kind of frame the context a little better. Although with the increasing call volumes and such, it can be difficult to take that time. But I think it's just important to keep those concepts in mind that a couple extra minutes can really make the difference. And, you know, even with like reframing this mindset that this is a more physiological process and not simply a choice. Uh, you know, we still, I still think people have a hard time interacting with some of um, with patients suffering from opiate use disorder. Do you have any like tips or tricks or tactics when interacting with those suffering from opiate use disorder? I think these patients are perceived as difficult to deal with and that they are not the most forthcoming and are not always accepting of care and help. But are there ways we can better get through to them? What are some methods you use when caring for, the, uh, for patients suffering from OUD and the ED? So it's it's a great question um, and probably not a very simple answer, but I, I approach all patients I see with the idea that one of the most distressing experience of any psychiatric or substance use disorder, as patients have described, is that feeling of being out of control. It's being, you know, almost betrayed by their brains or their bodies where they're in scenarios and they, they just feel like they can't um, predict when some symptoms will hit for OUD, you know, you think about cravings or, you know, when are those withdrawal symptoms going to start? Um, so I almost always start my treatment planning discussions with patients by saying something along the lines of, I want you to be in the driver's seat of what happens next. We as healthcare workers, as physicians, as clinicians, we often want to fix patients' problems. Um, we've got a lot of expertise kind of backing that up, but we also have a good amount of data that suggests that forcing patients into treatment when they're not willing or wanting to engage is not really helpful. And it can be difficult, um, but usually it's best as, as, as best as we can to meet patients where they are. So if that means that they, they come into the ED, it's the eighth time I've seen them. This time they're willing to consider therapy, but they're really not into the idea of starting medications, even though I think that that's probably going to be helpful. I'll talk them through the data that we have around the benefit of some of our pharmacological tools and the risk of relapse without this treatment, but I will take what they're willing to give at that time and really offer encouragement and reinforce that and validate that. If they're willing to take a naloxone kit home with them from the ED, maybe a harm reduction kit, but they're not willing to engage in treatment just yet, that's okay. You know, we invite them to come back and, you know, we give them the resources to when you're ready for treatment, here are some ways to engage. 
If you encounter them in the community after an overdose and they aren't willing to come into the ED for further treatment or evaluation, maybe they consider a follow-up call or a visit the next day from a community partner. You know, we have some of those programs in the community, and um, I think that there's going to be more on that to come in a future podcast here, along with, again, treatment program contact information to consider. So one of the techniques that's um, evidence-informed, it's widely available, it's it's easy enough without um, a lot of extensive training for anybody can do to implement these techniques. Um, we think of motivational interviewing. It's meeting the patient where they're at while also preparing and empowering them for change. If I have any fans out there of mnemonics, I was never one, but if it works for you, um, something to think about with motivational interviewing is ORs. So the O stands for open question, the A stands for affirmations, the R is for reflective listening, and the S stands for summaries. I won't take credit for this. This is from a uh, Miller and Rolnick motivational interviewing um, from published in 2002. But I think it's helpful and simplistic for anyone to remember and do this when you meet a patient anytime, anywhere. So what this might look like in practice Open questions invite others to tell their stories in their own words without leading them in a specific direction and without passing any judgment in the conversation. So thinking of questions like, how can I help you with X or help me understand Y or how would you like things to be different? What do you want to do next? So this approach conveys empathy and communicates that you want to understand where the other person is coming from rather than taking the, the role of being the expert in their situation. With affirmations, um, the purpose of, of this approach is to recognize patients' strengths and acknowledge behaviors that lead in the direction of positive change, no matter how big or small. So they're meant to build the patient's confidence in their ability to change. Um, you can think about, you know, kind of tucking these statements away for future use. You handled yourself really well in that situation. Or if I were in your shoes, I don't know if I could have managed nearly so well. I appreciate that you're willing to meet with me, or I've enjoyed talking with you. Reflective listening is a pathway for engaging others in relationships and building trust. So don't assume that you know what the person needs based on your clinical experience or expertise. Close the loop in communication to make sure that breakdowns and misinterpretations don't occur. And that then communicates to the patient, you really care about their perspective and their experience. So you can think about using some phrases like, so you feel, or it sounds like you, or you're wondering if, and then repeating or paraphrasing what the patient has already said to you during the course of your conversation. And the last thing to incorporate are summaries. So these can be thought of as applications of reflective listening and are really helpful at transition points in the conversation. So again, summarizing helps ensure clear communication. Using statements like, let me see if I understand so far, or here's what I've heard, tell me if I've missed anything. Listen for and give special attention to change statements. So if in the course of the conversation you've had with a patient, they've acknowledged my use has gotten a little out of hand at times. We think of those types of statements as problem recognition. The patient recognizes that there's an issue. Or if I don't stop, something bad's going to happen. This is a statement of concern. I'm going to do something. I'm just not sure what it is yet. So that's a statement in, you know, kind of implying intent to change. 
I know I can get a handle on this problem is a statement of optimism. So call these out in your summary. These are those little openings that show that a patient is thinking about doing something differently or engaging in treatment. If you hear ambivalence in the patient, include both sides in your conversation. So on the one hand, I really recognize that my use of opioids is a problem. On the other hand, I really, really don't want to go through that really intense withdrawal and, you know, kind of reflecting that back to the patient to recognize that both things are true and you're not going to neglect the negative in order to emphasize the positive. You can also include objective information in this phase of the conversation as well, your own clinical knowledge, existing research that you're aware of, but be concise. And then end the conversation with an invitation. Did I miss anything? Or if that's accurate, what else should we be considering? Or is there anything you want to add or correct? Responses to those questions might lead into planning for or taking concrete steps toward a change goal. Thank you. That was a really helpful overview of motivational interviewing, which is something I think we could certainly use with all of our patients in any situation. So I think that's a great tool for all of us to have. So what about our patients who are on current treatment for OUD? Can you tell us a little bit about what their life kind of looks like when they're engaged in a treatment process? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I practice in the ED. I Going back to that idea of we don't necessarily see patients when they're doing well, I sort of pulled on um, for, for many reasons, but there's a great book called Evicted. It's set in Milwaukee, um, and it focuses on the stories of a few individuals struggling with unstable housing and a variety of other issues. So one of those stories in Evicted, um, the individual is named in the story, uh, Scott, is one such individual featured in the book. He's a licensed practical nurse who suffers an injury at work. He's prescribed opioids for the acute pain and then he also finds along the way, they help him cope with his history of trauma and the loss of several loved ones. So as he recognizes that, and he's sort of using it for emotional treatment as well, his use escalates to buying and stealing pills from his workplace, um, discovering fentanyl, which he sort of extracts from patches at work and injects on the job. Soon he loses his job, he loses his LPN license, and then he loses his apartment. So he spends a couple of years living in a mobile home park where he meets other individuals who introduce him to heroin and specifically how to use heroin intravenously. So they they sort of come back to his story over the course of about two or two and a half years where he's made several attempts to engage in sober social clubs and sort of do you know menial labor in one of those sober social clubs. And he tries a sober living facility um, that charges him an exorbitant amount of rent and really doesn't allow him to save up any money. And so these different stressors throughout his journey lead to a number of relapses, but he finally enters a meaningful recovery phase with the help of methadone, which, you know, it takes essentially two or two and a half years for that even to be mentioned to him and actually costs him a significant amount of money each month to go to this methadone clinic. And he is in a shelter, um, actually a shelter here in Milwaukee, the guest house, and they give him then a job opportunity um, in that shelter as a resident manager, which then eventually leads to stable long-term housing through a program offered at the shelter. And so you see this very long journey and it, you know, the, the writer sort of comes back to it intermittently and the way in which his story is written, I think really beautifully conveys the complexity and also the nonlinear nature of the recovery process. 
and also um, brings into the light, which we might not see in the hospital setting or in the pre-hospital setting, the really critical roles that meaningful work and enough income and stable and affordable housing, things that we can't necessarily fix in the ED, those are really crucial components for motivating individuals to continue their sobriety journey And, you know, for him, it was that, how do I get back to that goal of returning to my nursing career, which was also sort of fraught with a lot of expenses and and hoops to jump through. So I, I would point anyone who wants a little bit more of a personal telling to that book. And it's a great um, depiction of what it's like, including like going to the methadone clinic every morning, 7am with a lot of people who are also employed and, you know, toting their children along. And um, so it's a really vivid depiction of that. Um, So hopefully some some of the listeners will pick that up. Thanks so much, Dr. Owen. That's a great example and an excellent book. It's really cool to hear stories like that, you know, set in our own community. And I think you're right. It paints a really accurate picture of how challenging the recovery process can be and just how complex it can be. So I agree and recommend that book to anybody interested in hearing more about that process. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Owen, for coming on to talk to us. We really appreciate your expertise here. Um, and we're glad to have you on. So next month, more to come on the treatment of OUD. Uh, In the meantime, um, feel free to check out some online resources on motivational interviewing that we will link here. And thanks as always for tuning in and taking such excellent care of your patients and our community. We really appreciate your hard work and we'll see you next month. Excellent. Thanks to everybody. And an extra special thanks to Dr. Owen for taking time out of our day to join us on our podcast this month. I hope a lot of that information was really useful for you. I know a lot of training in EMS focuses heavily around the skills, the interventions, the medications that we can give to patients. I always find that learning new communication skills, ways to talk to our patients, ways to understand what they're going through are incredibly useful uh, in helping the day-to-day work. So I greatly appreciate everyone's time and the information provided today. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next month and stay safe. Bye now.